0: Well, hello there, welcome to Biblical Chili. Now listen, the cruise just about to start. Let me fill you in on a few details if you've never been here before. You see, we speak openly about the Bible and our daily walk with Christ. And it's our continuing prayer that we help you grow closer to Jesus every day. Now, you might be wondering why it's called Biblical Chili. You see, around this table, we have people from all walks of life, different histories, backgrounds, different futures. Even different religious views. But even with all these differences, that shouldn't hinder us from carrying on a conversation. And you stepped in at a good time, too. Because the chili crew is walking through the Bible from cover to cover. And right now, they're in the book of Exodus. Moses talking to a burning bush. Plagues. Exodus. Out of slavery. In the Ten Commandments. Woo! This gives me the collie I was just thinking about it.
1: Hey everyone, today we're gonna be reading in Exodus chapter five and continuing the story of the Exodus and Moses. Uh, So what happened in the last chapter? Do you guys remember what happened that was kind of (laughs) off-putting?
2: Besides his cloak that he could stick his hand into and actually become (laughs) like diseased. Leprous. And then also his cane that if he drops, turns into a snake, I don't know.
1: I don't think that's the only thing that those two things do, but uh, yeah. So, okay. So Moses in the last chapter, chapter four, he ended up talking to to apparently Christ in the uh, type of Christophany type of thing where God was reaching out to him through a, a burning bush that wasn't burning up. Kind of peculiar, but God uses very interesting ways to get our attention. Uh, so I'm going to be reading in chapter five and we're just going to go and see how this this runs out. So Moses is now in Egypt. Okay, so let's kind of set the stage here. Moses is now in Egypt. He's with, he's with his brother Aaron. His wife came and apparently his children came as well. And so now he's engaging Pharaoh here for the first time. So he's really doing something he, he was reluctant to do. And, and listen, to the, listen to the last uh, episode if you guys want to kind of dive into that a little deep. Uh, it was very interesting about how he was very reluctant to do what the Lord asked him to do. So this is chapter 5 of Exodus, verse 1. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went in and told Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. And Pharaoh said, Who is this Lord that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, nor will I let Israel go. (laughs) So, <laughs> I, like your pharaoh, I like your pharaoh voice. Thank you. Thank you. Verse snooty. <laughs> okay, so verse three. So they said <laughs> uh, so they said, so meaning Aaron and Moses. So they said, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go three days journey into the desert and sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. Okay, side note, for those of us who know the end of the story about the Exodus, about what happens, about what happens after 10 plagues, okay, all the way to the end, let's back up. Do you see what the first request that God is giving to Pharaoh? Let us go three days journey into the desert and sacrifice to the Lord. He's not asking, let us destroy your entire economic system with plagues, let us do all this, let us let us uh, besmirch the name of Egypt, let us destroy your entire socioeconomical system and then take all your goods and for payment for the last you know several hundred years of not being paid of being slaves da, 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 da. like that's not what God is asking, is he? He's asking in my in my mind, maybe I'm reading this wrong in, in my mind he's asking a very reasonable request, hey, let my people go for three days into the wilderness, And worship
2: me right i could see that
3: i feel like what's going on here is the pharaoh is is very offended i mean because he's he's like you're in egypt why should i care about this other god that i've never heard of and these people are my people and so what who is this other god that says that he's the god of them when i'm the god of them And, you know, there are all these other smaller gods that might have control. Um, But, you know, he saw his himself as the ultimate authority. And I think it's interesting here that, like, God's name appears, like, more times than the amount of verse. They're really establishing, like.
1: Yeah, okay. So, Lord God of Israel, and then it says God of the Hebrews, and then it says Lord our God so far. And we're only to verse 3.
3: Right. Yeah, so it's like. Okay one. And then, no, you know, he oh, called the my people, let my people go. And I'm sure the Pharaoh's like, no, 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 no. These are my people. <laughs> <laughs> like I can just, I can like picture him getting very offended.
2: It's such a you know, very like, he Karen thinks, He knows
3: all the gods, you know?
2: Yeah.
1: But doesn't it seem like God is not asking to, God is not asking, let my people go. At least it, it seems to me. And, and once again, I'd be willing to talk about this. It seems to me like God is saying, let my people go so that they can hold a feast, so that they can worship me, so on and so forth. He's not asking, let my people go to destroy Egypt. He's not saying, let my people go necessarily permanently. Because the first thing he says is, let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. Like this, I don't think this is an unreasonable request. It's almost like, hey, give them a vacation week off.
3: Right. Like, I mean,
1: is that what it sounds like to you as well? Like, this doesn't sound like what happens at the end. This sounds like a reasonable, easy request.
3: Well, yeah, I think absolutely. And that's just like how it shows how arrogant and prideful Pharaoh was. Like, you know, he just couldn't even do that. And I think it's because he kind of, you know, he saw himself as an incarnated God. And so he didn't want this rival, you know, with his people like it's just like no that's mine like i feel like he's kind of a kid throwing a temper tantrum that can't even let another oh, like kid play with their, yeah like play with their doll for like two seconds like it's like no it's mine
1: <laughs> <laughs> right it's and and then continuing on in verse four he says then the king of egypt said i just i find it funny because moses is the author of exodus moses changes pharaohs like do you know how remember back in genesis okay <sighs> It was Israel and Joseph. Jacob. Israel. No, I'm, I'm sorry, Jacob. Yeah, you're right. So it was Israel and Jacob. Israel and Jacob that kept flip-flopping according to his faith, his personality at the time, his whatever, his engagement with the Lord. Right. And I almost feel as though this is the same thing that he's doing because now all of a sudden he's not the Pharaoh of Egypt. Or he's not the Pharaoh. He is right. the king of Egypt. Almost it's like,
3: like he's Pharaoh, capital P, it's like I am the Pharaoh and right. then you have you have God introducing himself, which I feel like we talked about this a little bit last week, how in the original text, you know this was God's real name. you know here we, we've watered it down and it's so generic, it's Lord, it's God. it's really it's so sad because that doesn't really mean anything. but here he's he's really introducing himself like I am the Almighty one true, eternal God. And right. so then right there, after he introduces himself through Moses and Aaron to Pharaoh, Pharaoh gets downgraded to just the king. Just
1: the king. Yeah. He's <laughs> just the guy that's kind of like it's like it's like going from from, you know, like CEO to manager. Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, OK, so then the king said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people from their work? Get back to their labor. And Pharaoh said. Look, the people of the land are many now, and you make them rest from their labor. So the same day, Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their officers, saying, "You shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks for the uh, to make brick as before. Let them go and gather straw for themselves, and you shall lay on them the quota of bricks which they may which they made before you shall not reduce it for they are idle. Therefore they cry out saying, saying, let us go and sacrifice to our God. Let more work be laid on the men that they may labor in it and let them not regard false words. Okay. So to sum up what just happened here is apparently um, much of Israel lost the Sabbath up to this point, and Moses came up to them. Well, and obviously, I mean, quite frankly, I, I think they can, it's quite obvious why they lost the Sabbath rest, which was the, the seventh day Sabbath rest, which was sundown on Friday to sundown on Saturday. They lost it living in Egypt because apparently their their slavery, their servitude to Egypt got to the point where they were working seven days a week. And so they completely just either forgot or just, hey, it's easier for me to work seven days than have double work or double duty on Friday. Because I got to make, you know, I got to make 1,000 bricks per person in my in my household in order to, you know, meet the quota. And in order to make this happen, it's easier for me to work overtime on the Sabbath day and violate the Sabbath day than it is for me to just, you know, work six days and double my work up on on, you know, the first day and the sixth day. Um, so apparently Moses and Aaron came in and reminded them of this rest that God gave them in a whole day. Do you say something, Susanna?
3: I was going to say that sounds familiar. What? <laughs> just, you know, everybody just wanting to work all the time where, you know, where you're, you're, you're kind of in enslaved and indebted where you feel like you just have to work all the time and you have to work seven days a week. And you know, like it's.
1: Um. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> right, and you, you feel like you need to, to, to make it. Incidentally, did you know, I know this is a little off topic, but um, still the same point during the French revolution. And this is a very interesting study. You guys can kind of check this out. The French revolution, they tried a 10 day work week. Mm-hmm. They tried a 10 day work week and the 10th day they got off. Okay. And it, Basically the the short short story is is it didn't last long. Like I think it only lasted like maybe at the most like a year or something like that. I'd have to look into the study to see exactly when. But they almost killed their society because people were working nine days straight and then having only one day off almost killed them psychologically. It started breaking down their mental and and, and, and physical ability to replenish their cells because they weren't getting that, that seventh day a rest or that weekend, like what we're used to is a weekend rest, you know, where we get usually Friday, Saturday, Sunday, or Saturday, Sunday off from work or just Saturday off. So we're working six days. Otherwise, I, I'm just saying, it's very interesting that they tried that and it didn't work. It's almost right. as though God made human beings to have six days of work. And then once you get to that seventh day, we rest just like in creation, as we did in, in our last season, when we did with Genesis season two, when Genesis God talks about that, you know, he, God himself rested on that, on that seventh day. I just find it interesting that even here today, human beings tried that, tried to get rid of the seven day week that God created and oops, didn't work.
3: (laughs) Right. Yeah. I'm pretty sure there was some point in time where there was an eight day week in there too. Yeah.
1: I'm sure. Yeah. Cause that was during all those revolutions that happened English, French. Yeah. Yeah.
3: And people wanted to try their own thing. And here we are here we are today
1: still globally we recognize seven days
2: what? yeah you mean you're not supposed to work seven days a week what i'm it, confused it's,
1: dude like you should you should see the studies on stuff like that like people who work seven days constantly psychologically their their mental capacities break down their cells literally start breaking down you because like their their cells don't
2: have time to replenish huh i am built different than everybody else all right <laughs>
0: <laughs> you are a robot.
1: <laughs> okay, so so to continue on, so what's happened basically is, if if we can kind of sum this up, Pharaoh said, "Okay, listen, you're going to take a day off. Fine. You know what? You got the same amount of bricks. I'm not going to give you the materials you need to make the bricks. Yet you have to have the same amount of quota." And he sent more task ma- masters over them.
3: It's like my last week. My daughter was sick, and it's like, oh, uh-huh. now not only do you know, I have to get this done and this done, and now I have a sick daughter and I have to do all these extra things, to take care of her. And I have to get it all done by the end of the day. And like,
1: right. Right.
3: <laughs> it's not fun.
1: <laughs> okay. So continuing on in verse 10 and the taskmasters of the people and their officers went out and spoke to the people saying, thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go get yourself straw where you can find it yet. None of your work will be reduced. So the people were scattered abroad throughout all of the land of Egypt to gather stubble instead of straw. And the taskmasters forced them to hurry, saying, Fulfill your work, your daily quota, as when there was straw. Also the officers of the children of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, why have you not fulfilled your task in making brick both yesterday and today as before? So it seems as though Pharaoh's really just trying to beat him down, like emotionally?
3: Right. Socially? I found this uh, historical fact, and I I, like thought of you, Justin. I know you were really going to like this. Oh, no. You got to start with did (laughs) you
1: know if it's... (laughs) (laughs)
3: <laughs> Did you know that um, there's a pretty large city, like a storehouse city, that the Israelites were given credit for building? And it's called Pithom or Python, and an archaeological find has confirmed that the you know that it was built with bricks made out of like straw and mud, um, clay. And so it, you know this this article says that Egyptologists made a startling discovery. Discovery, they unearthed some mud brick structures and pipe them in which the bottom courses of bricks were made with the normal content of cut straw. And then the middle courses were made with straw that had po- been pulled up by the roots. And the final few courses contained little to no straw at all, <laughs> which so, is just another. So it's like, wow. this is like proving, you know, this is this ancient city that they found in Egypt, showing how they had straw that was being provided for them that was cut up. And then, you know, they're sent out and they have to gather it themselves. So okay, here's the second section where it's all pulled up and you know, the whole thing. And then when well, they just run out or they can't do it anymore, there's no straw.
1: That <laughs> is spectacular. Oh wow. I'm gonna I'm gonna have to see that. Okay.
2: That would actually be pretty cool.
1: Right. Um, if I can get some information on that, I, I will put it in the link in the the comment or I'll link in the description section. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. I'll so, I'll send
3: you my screenshot and you can look up that city. That's
1: that's and- <laughs> great. But... So, so, okay. So what that sounds like now, I was under the impression when I was younger, when I first read this, it sounded to me like Israel was a slave in the sense of like the fullest extent of slavery. But it sounds like, sounds like that Egypt just only forced them to build their cities. Do you know what I mean? Like, it doesn't sound like he used. They used them for cattle raising. It doesn't sound like they used them for farming because they provided the straw and and materials to make their bricks. It sounds as though they just had taskmasters in the city that would say, "Hey, did you make your thousand bricks today? Did you make your thousand bricks today? Did you put that? You know, you know, other people that they carved stone or whatever. It sounds as though that they just used them for building, so- right?
3: Which kind of makes sense because I'm sure in any uh economy you know you need you still need your people to to work and provide and make money and you know do stuff so you don't want to necessarily give all of those jobs away to slaves so you still needed people doing regular things
1: right
2: right okay so i can see that like the blacksmiths the actual cooks and different things like that to actually take up the time but if you think about it construction builders or construction people manual labor and all that other stuff that's what they were doing so to well, me, well
1: building is isn't that like the deepest and the hardest of, of manual labors because for before you even build you got to build your foundation which means digging holes right. and yeah ditches and you got like to find
2: the materials to actually bring the materials to do that but i wouldn't say the fact that okay because if you look at this it actually says just the israelites and everything else egypt wasn't just one culture at that time, it wasn't just one religious belief. There's multiple. So why would it not be plausible for multiple camps? Like you have the Spartans over there, you have the Israelites over here, and they would stick together, but these people would be on different tasks.
1: Possibly. And you know I'm, I mean? I'm just saying that, that could have been. It just seems as though Israel was apparently their builders, right. their, their contractors, I guess. Because
2: if you have multiple people to actually go – get the straw, instead of telling people, you know what, you go get the straw, cut it off with the cane, and do this. Nope, you got to make the same amount of bricks that this guy does, without going to get the straw. Without
1: the straw, right. So, yeah, I just, I found that interesting, so, now, but that, that's great. I don't know, I, I like your, I like your discovery. <laughs> All right, so verse 15, then the officers of the children of Israel came and cried out to Pharaoh, saying, why are you dealing thus with your servants? There is no straw given to your servants, and they say to us, Make brick! And indeed your servants are beaten, but the fault is in your own people. But he said, You are idle! Idle! Therefore you say, Let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Therefore go now and work, for no straw shall be given to you, yet you shall deliver the quota of bricks." And the officers of the children of Israel saw that they were in trouble after it was said, You shall not reduce any bricks from any of your daily quota. You shall not reduce any of your bricks from your daily quota. Sorry. Then as they came out from Pharaoh, they met Moses and Aaron, who who stood there to meet them, and they said to them, So this is Israel speaking, okay? Let the Lord look on you and judge because you have made us abhorrent to the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants to put a sword in their hand to kill us. Okay, so with, with this, it seems as though Pharaoh was really slick in just... Tearing Israel down and beating them down. Why? Because Israel eventually ended up turning on their own saviors, which was Moses and Aaron. Like God was trying to use Moses and Aaron to be a savior to them, like to be the, the that exodus. And they turned on them very easily. So I, I, it seems as though Israel themselves were involved possibly in paganism also because, or at least influenced, because it seems as though they're holding Pharaoh to a higher regard than God or even the people that God sent.
2: Uh, I think it's more fear because they... Just fear?
1: Just I, fear? Or do you think maybe some cultural influence or both? Maybe, maybe it could be both. I'm going to
2: go with both, but I, I, I lean more towards fear. Okay, because the taskmaskers, we have I've heard it what six or seven times so far. Yeah. And the taskmaskers, okay, they're not polite people. They have the whips. They. Well, have, they're the yeah. ones
1: responsible for the, them getting their
0: quota.
2: Right, and they. It's not like they go, you know what, buddy? You you tried today? No, no. You get up and you do it, or I'm gonna hit you. You get up and make sure the fact that there's enough bricks on that side of the wall. I'm going to be back in a second. I'm going to go eat my meal in the shade while you stay out in the sun. If not, then I'm going to hurt you.
1: Well, the only reason I say this is because Israel's actually used this type of language. They said, because you have made us abhorrent in the sight of Pharaoh. They're saying, you've made us look bad in the sight of Pharaoh, right?
3: I think that it's it's uh, easy for us, to, like I don't know, reading ahead in Exodus, like you know, they talk about how they they miss all the you know the good <laughs> things of Egypt, you know. So it's like we can tell if we um, have looked ahead that that they obviously were spoiler alert, them. yeah. But like if you don't have the spoiler alert, then <laughs> then you might just think that they're just terrified for their lives, which they are because they think that Pharaoh is the one in control of their life and not, not the one true God.
1: All right. So continuing on in verse 22. uh, So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Lord, why have you brought trouble on this people? Why is it you have sent me for since I came to Pharaoh to speak to your name? He has done evil in this people, neither have you delivered your people at all it's I don't know just side note, I guess it sounds like Moses is number one, I would say Moses is more concerned about God's character here and the way that God looks because it says Pharaoh um to speak in your name, so like it it he seems like all he cares about is is god's God's thing and he's like. God, you haven't you know, brought these people out. And I don't think he realizes that God's going to take his time with this. Like God's going to make sure that this is done right. So chapter six, Then the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see that I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand, he will let them go. And with a strong hand, he will drive them out of the land. And God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord God. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but my name, my name, Lord, I will not, I was not known to them.
3: Yeah, I feel like he's being so, he's just like, I got this under control.
1: (laughs) Right, God's like, chill. Listen, this isn't over yet. I have also established my covenant with them. So God is kind of going through His history of what He's done before to say, "Listen, I, I, I yeah, yeah, I've got this right." Uh, to give them the land of Canaan, the land of their pilgrimage, in which they were strangers.
2: Didn't we go over covenant in yes. the previous episode? So yes. What was that meaning? So
1: I'm... covenant, covenant basically means promise, but it's a, it's 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 the most solemn promise. Like God's promise He made with Abraham was was to the extent that Abraham, you know, remember the bifurcation, the, the splitting of the animals, and God walked between the two animals. That that symbolism was God saying, what has happened to these animals happened to me if I break covenant. That's how serious that promise was. So that's, that's God's, that's what basically what a covenant was. But God made it with Abraham, he made a covenant with Isaac, and with Jacob. So, um, but anyway, yeah, good point. And I have, this is verse 5, And I have also heard the groaning of the children of Israel, whom the Egyptians keep in bondage, and I have remembered my covenant. Therefore say to the children of Israel, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens from the Egyptians. I will rescue you from their bondage, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. I will take you as my people, and I will be your God. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who brings you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will bring you into the land which I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I will give it to you as a heritage. I am the Lord. So Moses spoke spoke thus to the children of Israel, But they did not heed Moses because of their anguish of spirit and cruel bondage. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Go in, tell tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the children of Israel go out of the land. And Moses spoke after the Lord saying, The children of Israel have not heeded me. How then shall Pharaoh heed me? For I am of, of, of uncircumcised lips. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a command for the children of Israel and for Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt. And we'll stop right there. Uh, just so kind of a recap of the rest of chapter 6, it's basically a family heritage of Moses and Aaron, and it's it's basically proving that Aaron and Moses are brothers and, and they're related. So um, that one we may kind of gently go over, but uh, we're not going to read through the whole thing. But I find it interesting that verse 7, it says, I will take you as my people and I will be your God. Throughout Exodus, God says this same phrase over and over and over and over and over again in different ways. But he says, I am your God and you are my people. You are my people and I am your God. And he also says stuff like, I will be with them. I will be with my people. So I'm just saying, just look for that because this is something that's really unique, if I can say this, in unique in the sense that most other faith systems do not have this personal, relational God. Normally they have a God that is out here, that cannot be reached, that he doesn't have a people, he just has you know, whoever's willing to, to be there with him. No, God says, listen, I want to be your God. I will be your God and you will be my people. It's this, this almost marital type of relational thing. And, and often God re- references, in, and I know Susanna, you know this, in, in Isaiah and, and um, Jeremiah, he often says that Israel is his bride. And in the New Testament, it talks about how the church is God's bride. It's this very relational, intimate
3: yeah, and something else cool with that is that the the word there for people, it's, um, it's the word, it's like ami or something like that. So it's, it's a, it basically means like a people group or nation, but it is only used exclusively for the Hebrew word people or the Hebrew nation. And there's the other word, which is goyim, which is what's translated also to, to nation or people, or, but it's used only in reference to the Gentile nations. So
2: it's, oh. like
3: they, it's like these words kind of both mean the same thing, but you'll never see the word goyim talking about people who have entered into covenant with God, and you'll never see the word Ami talking about people who are outside of covenant wow. with God.
1: Wow. Okay, so linguistically they, they, they have two separate words for, you know, my people or, or people.
3: Right, Like na- and national the definition speech. of the words technically mean the same thing, but obviously not. Like, you know, God has said, you are my my people. It's this whole different word that means to me different. Everyone else, any other nation or people is this other thing.
1: Right, in context, God has, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow, that makes it even more powerful. I just, ugh. and I think, and I've heard this now, this is preamble to what's coming next. When he says, I'm, uh, an outstretched arm, and I. this is verse 6 in chapter 6. So, Exodus 6, 6. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. The judgments here that God is talking about, is he talking about final judgments, as in like end-day judgments on Egypt? Or is he talking about judgments as in just because it, and it's it, it's very it's very difficult because I know there's two different types of judgments there's judgments like when Israel is being punished God judges them but that doesn't mean that they're they're condemned it means they're they're being judged it's like being you know putting time out or being spanked or something like that from your parents it's like that punishment type of thing and then there's judgment like in the New Testament it talks about how the judgment or the 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 the, the The fire that rained down upon Sodom and Gomorrah and and all all those cities, right? That was actually a type of final judgment. Not just talking about the fire, but it was talking about those people were actually judged like there is no more judgment for them. They were judged at that moment, like end time judgment type of judgment. So is this talking about the same thing or is this just talking about plagues to say, hey... Let my I don't go. think it's
3: talking about any of those things. <laughs> okay, go ahead, go ahead. Um, I think it's like um so later, you know, when they're doing the giving of like when he's giving the law and, and for the rest of the bible when they refer to those commandments, it's these are my my commandments, my laws, my statutes, my judgments and they talk about your like how how God is is the wisest, he was the wisest. The most righteous judgments he gives the best, like, like so. It's it's his, it's his determination of what's right and wrong. Right. So, so you're it, saying
1: you're saying when he says, "I will redeem you with outstretched arm and with great judgments," you're talking about when he gives the covenant law.
3: Yes. The Ten and Commandments. It, you know, he says, he oh, says, "I'm giving these." These these judgments, these laws, these commandments to sanctify you, to redeem you, like these are all, it's, you know, that's its purpose. (laughs) And so he's saying, I'm going to redeem you and give you these great, you know, righteous judgments. These, you know, I'm going to show you the way to live. I'm going to show you what's right and wrong so that you can be the best nation on the world. And everyone's going to know that I'm your God and you're my people because, You know, they're all going to be like, your God is so great and powerful because he knows what's up.
1: Right. So, so God here. So I'm I'm sorry. Verse six is just very, very powerful. It says, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from underneath the burdens. So God doesn't just want to bring them out from the burdens. He wants to. The next part, it says, I will rescue you from your bondage. He doesn't just want to rescue you from the bondage. The last part is, is I will redeem you. So that right there is just powerful because God doesn't just want to pull us. Uh, and if I can bring us, us into example, God doesn't just like, and, and I, don't, I don't know how to put this. It's not like God just wants us to be comfortable. Okay, bring right. us out of this comfort. That's not what he wants. He continues on. God says, no, I will also redeem you. In verse 7, it continues on. It says, I will take you as my people. So that's like the next step. It's not just, you know, okay, I'm gonna bring you up out of this muck and mire. I'm gonna also redeem you. I'm gonna also make you my people, and I will be your God. That's the final one is I will be your God.
3: Right. So he's saying, You're living this life, you're enslaved, you're in bondage, and and you're living according to the flesh, you know, you're enslaved. Like it's this. That, so can all we that say that world
1: bondage? World. And, and I want you to keep going down the path, but I've heard often heard that the bondage that they were in is compared to the bondage of sin
3: right, in the New Testament. Right. Exactly. <laughs> so, you know, that's kind of what this type is. You know, Egypt is the type of kind of, I mean, you can even say it's like ourselves, our flesh, us wanting to rule ourselves. I don't know, all that stuff. Um, so he's saying, I'm going to free you from that and I'm going to show you the way to live. And then you're going to be like me, you're going to be my people. So he's freeing them by teaching them. Wow. Whereas I feel like we have a lot of people today that say, you know, we're being freed from all that stuff that God taught us. Like, no, like God taught us <laughs> how to be like, how to be free, you know, like he, he taught us his ways and his character so that we can live like him and be like him. So it's not a mystery. We don't have to guess it's freedom. That's freedom.
1: Right. And this is all the way back in Exodus that we're in the second book of the Bible and God is teaching about freedom, true freedom. Right. 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 And, and Jesus, I think said it very, very well. The sun will not make you just free. You'll be free indeed. Like you'll be very free, like truly free. And right. once again, he's, that's what he's talking about. He's talking about freedom from sin, from the bondage of sin.
2: Just, trying to think about it as the like what I think of slavery versus sin and then go with like the chain gang concept because that's like the true like bondage kind of thing that I'm thinking of and then sin and then just being able to break away from it it's just kind of interesting in that aspect
1: so we'll continue on with this later i just I, I think this was this was very powerful because in these just short couple of chapters here they were kind of short chapters but these couple of short chapters god is trying trying right now i'm going to emphasize trying he's trying to reestablish that covenant with israel and the first thing that israel does is tries to reject that covenant that renewal of the covenant, where God's really trying to pull them out. So, and I know this is kind of like leaving it a cliffhanger. Well, what does Moses do? Yeah. Join us <laughs> right. next week for Biblical Chili. <laughs> so, dear Lord, we thank you once again that uh, we can come together. We can dive into your Word deeply, Father, um, and, and stay down, stay down long, and just really really fish this out and, and find out what you're trying to do with Israel during this situation, Father. And in many ways, you want at the same to have us to be part of that covenant as well, making that, that relational uh, connection with us as well, Father. I pray that uh, you'll help us this week to to grow in that manner, to, to see that covenantal, uh, to see your judgments in our lives, to see your character. that can can be reflected through us, Father. Uh, Father, give us that strength, Lord. Uh, We love you so much and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, this has been Justin. This has been Sully. This is Susanna. Thanks for joining us, guys, and we will see you later.
0: Now listen, just because this is the end of the episode doesn't mean it's the end of the conversation. You can find Biblical Chili on almost any social media outlet. Also, each week, Biblical Chili goes live on YouTube. And if you're not a big fan of YouTube, just search for Biblical Chili anywhere and I'm sure you'll be able to find us. Or just go to biblicalchili.com. We also want to make sure we give a shout-out to one of our co-hosts, Joe, who's a host on buddywalkwithjesus.com. Now, until we meet again, remember... Be part of the conversation. Goodbye. Do you think they're still listening? I doubt it. There can't be that many people that listened all the way to the end of the track. Most of probably skip it. But in case you did, congratulations. You're one of the few. We love you.